Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Welcome back, folks. We are joined by Dr. Joe Cantor, the state health officer for the state of Louisiana. Doc, uh, happy new year to you and welcome back. Thank you, Neil. Happy New Year to you as well. It's really nice to be back with you. So we've got a lot of things going on, a confluence of flu, RSV, and COVID. Um, kind of dissect that up for us and tell us where we stand. Biggest issue right now is flu. Um, we have exceedingly high flu rates in Louisiana right now. It's actually, looking back over the past five years, this is uh, well in exceedance of any point that we've hit over the past five years. It's um, more than double the national average right now, close to 15% of all um, uh, all visits right now are, are due to flu-like activity. It's a very, very high number. Um, there were about 10,000 ER visits in the state last week for this reason. Um, and again, if you look back over the past five years, this is the highest point that we've been for flu. We were spared bad flu seasons the past few years, thankfully, you know, while COVID was higher. Um, it, it seems, unfortunately, that our time has come right now. RSV has thankfully gone down. We had an early peak. Before, RSV. before we move to RSV, Doc, let's talk about, if you don't mind, how does this reveal itself? What are some of the symptoms of this, just traditional flu-like symptoms? You know, it can vary for folks. Um, most people know what it feels like to get the flu. You feel run down, um, body aches, cough, shortness of breath, um, just being very tired, severe disease, uh, you know, gives a lot of shortness of breath and, and high fever. But you can get all types of symptoms beyond that. People get gastrointestinal symptoms, GI, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, those type of symptoms. And um, you know, as we've chatted about in the past, it's the younger kids and the older folks who are you know, really the most at risk for severe disease. They're, they're the highest risk to get hospitalized. And when you have young kids, infants, you know, people within the first 12 months of life, very challenging to pick out symptoms because they, they don't tell you what's going on with them. And right. it can look um, like just poor feeding, poor sleeping. It can be very hard to parse that out with the babies. So let's move to RSV then. Uh, what are we seeing there? We're doing okay right now. Cases have been going down consistently for the past month or so. We, we had an early RSV season. We got out to an early peak. It was a pretty high peak, but we've come down fairly consistently since then. So in one sense, it's, it's rather um, opportune for us. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy when the peaks of RSV and flu don't line up at the same time because then you get this double or sometimes a triple whammy in the hospitals. Um, so we had an early peak of RSV really before flu started kicking off. And I think with hospitals being very busy now with flu, 
you know, folks are thankful that they didn't have to deal with both of those peaks at the same time. Um, and I'm hearing of a new strain of COVID. I'm not sure it's here, but I actually, I think I know six people with COVID right now. Uh, and, and that hasn't happened in a long time. Uh, yeah. And just all of a sudden in the last two to three weeks, I'm hearing more and more and more. And it, it seems as though it's becoming more prevalent. Yeah, we had a little bit of a, a bump following the holidays and the travel. And that, that's really not unexpected. We, we, we fairly predicted that COVID is, is out there. It's not surging in the manner it has been at certain points in the past. But uh, it's kind of at a, a low baseline rate with a little bit of a recent bump. The the most predominant variant right now is this JN.1 variant that, that holds true both nationally and here. So it's certainly out there. There's really nothing that's particular about this variant that's a curveball to us. It's another sublineage of the Omicron family which means that um, for folks that have the most recent version of the COVID vaccine or, or booster, it's a pretty good match for that. And folks that have gotten COVID in the past year and a half to two years, you know, those antibodies are, are um, you know, conferring some protection against this JN.1 because it's a sublineage of that. It's not putting people in the hospital at any increased rate. Um, and, you know, as we've talked about, I, I expect in a few months we'll be talking about some other variant that, that most likely won't be a curveball either. So COVID is out there. The, the people that we've talked about over the past three to four years that are most vulnerable to severe disease with COVID, that hasn't changed. And just like the flu, it's, it's the very old and the very young. Um, and for folks that fall into those categories, you know, there's a lot of protections out there available. But we are seeing some increased cases, and I think it's really related to travel and gatherings over the holidays. Doc, there's one theory out there that uh, COVID may have morphed into something more of a stomach bug as a result of um, detection of record levels of the virus in wastewater. I know that we have a very active wastewater monitoring system. What, what are we seeing? Yeah, we are. Um, and, you know, we've invested in that here, and, and the CDC has invested in that nationwide. Um, it, it's kind of two different things. The, the, the fact that we can detect COVID in wastewater doesn't necessarily speak to it being a stomach bug or the, or the manner in which COVID is spread. COVID is still a respiratory virus, you know, very similar to the flu and RSV in that aspect. It's spread through respiratory means, coughing, sneezing, sometimes just speaking in the same room as someone. That's the primary mode of transmission. You know, there are other plenty of stomach bugs that are spread through a more um, stomach bug, typical route of, of transmission, hand to mouth, et cetera. You know, that's not primarily how COVID is spread. That said, uh, because of the tests that are out there, we can detect it in the wastewater from a surveillance standpoint. But that's really not how COVID is being spread. Now, in terms of people getting sick with COVID and what their symptoms are like, we absolutely see some people with GI symptoms, upset stomach, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. That's been the case, you know, since day one. COVID can do a whole lot of different things to different people, but it remains, in terms of how it's spread from person to person, very much a respiratory virus.
Do we have any train of thought uh, that's kind of um, compelling and, and that more people are embracing about COVID that, you know, that we haven't discussed before that where we find ourselves today? Well, you know, we're in kind of this awkward point where it's, you know, we're not in a pandemic, um, but it really hasn't totally normalized. And I, I think, you know, a lot of people expect that in time it's going to, COVID's going to become a very seasonal and predictable virus the way that flu is to some extent. You know, you, you know when flu season's coming, it's always a little bit different, but you know when flu season's coming. And uh, we haven't gotten to that point with COVID. You know, I keep thinking maybe we're there yet, but there's really no evidence to say that we're there. And we've all got this pandemic fatigue. I certainly feel it myself as well. Um, you know, flip side of that is, you know, unfortunately, we, we've not had a week yet since the pandemic started where we were able to say zero people died of COVID in Louisiana. And that's, that's really unfortunate. And the message I take from that is um, there still is risk. The risk is higher with the very old and the very young. And I don't think we should be complacent about that. As we've, you and I have talked a number of times, and usually with regard to the flu vaccine, um, when there are protections available, and, and you know, COVID vaccines are easy to get and they're good, um, particularly for people that are at higher risk, people who are older and people that have significant medical conditions, they still save lives, um, you know, with the vaccine and other protections available now. And even though folks are exhausted with COVID, and again, I, I feel that too, um, when you have the potential to save lives, I think you really need to be leaning in on that. So we're into this mRNA technology that was utilized uh, for these COVID vaccines. Have we? Have you seen any uh, significant spinoff where we're down a road where we we're able to utilize this mRNA technology to maybe the flu or something else to create vaccines? Yeah, there's work ongoing now um, for mRNA-based flu vaccines. There's also work ongoing for mRNA-based uh, nasal spray vaccines, both for flu and for COVID. Um, the nasal spray vaccines are exciting. You know, viruses like COVID and, and flu, these respiratory viruses, they initially take up residence in your upper airway, in your nose and in your sinuses. And so the, the thought is that uh, a nasal vaccine would confer protection, particularly where the virus first enters and encounters the body's defenses. Um, so, so it could be more powerful in that way. So that's that's an exciting platform. The other thing that the mRNA vaccines have done a really good job of is they've just sped up the timeline from um, from research and development to production and. You know, distribution across the country. Uh, it typically, in, you know, with the older vaccine platforms, it takes longer to get a vaccine out. And with the way that we know COVID mutates and flu certainly mutates too, the more you shorten that timeline, the more you're able to get a vaccine out in as close to real time as possible that actually matches the variant of that virus that's circulating. And I think that timeline is going to continue to shrink. So this is really the dawn of this type of technology, and it's got a lot of potential. Um, and like I said, uh, it's, it's, I, I think it's been <laughs> controversial on some 
lenses and, and politicized, unfortunately, but it really does offer significant advancements to, to vaccine medicine, and we're at the very beginning part of it. We're, uh, from a public health perspective, I know we had talked before, there was some um, uh, venereal disease. I think we had a, what, a syphilis outbreak, and mm-hmm. we were having challenges there. Where do we stand on that issue? Oh, it's about the same. We, we had these double challenges of a large increase in syphilis cases. Th- that hasn't changed, unfortunately, and it's not just Louisiana. It, it's nationwide with a predominance in the southern states, and there's a lot of discussion about, about why that is. Um, we've kind of taken um, you know, our foot off the gas in our work on some STDs during the pandemic, and, and we need to rectify that. Um, very much nationwide problem. It was compounded for us by a shortage of the type of penicillin that's used to treat syphilis. And this was one of the most infuriating things that I dealt with in my job this past year was, you know, there's not a lot of diseases that you still use penicillin for it. (laughs) You know, you're using Cipro and amoxicillin and all types of other antibiotics. Syphilis is one of the few diseases you still use penicillin for, and for it to be on a national shortage when we're having a syphilis crisis was absolutely infuriating to me. Um, That has gotten better. So the supply of syphilis has improved. It's still not exactly where it was before they had the shortage. Pfizer is the only manufacturer, domestically at least, of this particular type of penicillin. But the supply has definitely increased. So we're not rationing this type of penicillin the way that we were here five or six months ago. So I'm happy about that. But still a lot of syphilis out there. And I'll tell you that the next step in terms of how we deal with this is to drastically increase screening. Um, one example of that, you know, syphilis is high across the board, but particularly high in pregnant women. In congenital cases of congenital syphilis, of babies born with syphilis, have increased to an un- unacceptable rate. And this should be a never event in medicine because the treatment is so easy and the, the effects of congenital syphilis on babies can be so devastating. So what we're working on now is encouraging more uh, physicians who see pregnant women in any specialty, not just obstetrics, but you know, in the emergency department, anywhere, to screen for syphilis multiple times during pregnancy. It's actually in state law, but we need to do some work to, to really make sure people are aware of that. How is that received by the medical community? I think when people recognize the scope of the issue, it's very well received. People in the medical community have legitimate concerns, such as, am I going to be ordering a test for a patient that insurance might not cover? Am I going to stick a patient with a bill? Those are very legitimate concerns that we work with insurance companies to rectify, and that's not been a barrier yet. Um, And insurance companies have been pretty reasonable, I think, when we talk to them. Um, Those are the biggest concerns. I think below the surface, there still is some stigma here, and it goes both ways. I think, um, you know, physicians, myself included, can fall into the trap of thinking, well, this patient doesn't have an STD. How do you know that? How do you know that until you test? And when you look at the numbers of cases we have in Louisiana, a lot of patients have STDs. So you you really can't pigeonhole like that. That's why universal screening multiple times during a woman's pregnancy is so important because um, a lot of times these preconceived notions of who is at risk don't really hold up when you actually see the facts.
because this is a classic case, right, of pay me a little now or pay me a lot later because no of the question. complications, right? And, I mean, it's, these numbers are not even close. Not even close. And, you know, babies born with congenital syphilis confer significant medical costs, um, let alone um, disability and, 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 and so forth. And I'll tell you, I mean, in, in, in conversations with insurers statewide, in making sure they are aware of the current state law. You know, we have a very progressive state law on this. There's only a handful of states, a small handful, that have actually mandated this type of aggressive testing during pregnancy into state law. We did that a few years ago. It's one of the heads-up things that Louisiana did. Not every insurer is actually aware of that, but in talking to them, they immediately recognize that trade-off. You know, syphilis tests are not that expensive. They're really not. Yeah. hundred bucks, maybe less than that. The cost of, you know, even one night in the ICU of a baby, you know, in, in, a, in a neonatal intensive care unit can, you know, be tens of thousands of dollars. It'd be north of $10,000 easy. I mean, easy. And is... a week in the ICU is going to put you in $100,000. So yeah, sure. They, they recognize that. And, you know, so we, we have plenty of fights with insurance companies about things, but this is not one thing that we're fighting with them about. So let's talk about what we are fighting about. Um, you know, a lot of these weight loss drugs, Wagovi, Ozempic, whatever it may be, um, it seems as though a number of insurance companies are dropping them from formularies uh, like crazy. Um, doesn't make a lot of sense now because, to me because it's, an, I guess, another situation to pay me now or pay me a whole lot later. Yeah, they're not going to be able to do that for much longer, I don't think. Again, we're, we're still pretty young in these new classes of medications, and you know, the data is still coming out. So what is irrefutable now in the data is that the new class of medications, Ozembic, Ligovia, et cetera, are very effective at reducing people's weight. They typically do that through a reduction in one's appetite. That data is fairly irrefutable. What is coming out now, which is the more important piece of data, is answering the question, okay, so it drops someone's weight. Does that actually translate into them being healthier? Does it actually translate into them having less heart attacks, less strokes, less of the complications we see from obesity? That data is coming in. The preliminary data says that it does. Um, there's been two studies that I know of that have made that case. There are more and bigger studies out there. As these studies continue to come in, if they continue to show what the initial ones have, that these drugs not only drop people's weight but also significantly reduce their chances of these serious medical conditions like heart attacks and strokes, you know, insurance companies can only hold out for so long before that wave of evidence is just, you know, um, irrefutable. So. These type of restrictions, I think, you know, it's, it's a new drug. It's an expensive drug. Um, it's a drug that people have to take regularly. Um, it's not like a one and done. You, know, you have to take it in, essentially in perpetuity to continue to have the effect. So it's fairly predictable that insurance companies are going to drag their feet and kind of fight that. But if this data continues to come in and show that what it looks like it's showing now, I think insurance companies are only going to be able to make that argument for so much longer. Yeah, I mean, when you're staring the face, um, A1C coming down, you know, your, your blood sugar levels, uh, whether or not you're metabolic or not, and now you're a little longer metabolic, 
How do they stare all of that in the face? I mean, you know, the possibility of having uh, type 2 diabetes, taking insulin, things of that nature, although insulin is a lot cheaper today than it was 10, 15 years ago. But, um, you know, and then uh, there's new data, I think, that even from a cardiovascular standpoint, there, there seems to be improvement as well. I don't know how you stare all this data in the face and in the short term say, no, it's best we're not going to do that. And, you know, you have a patient that says, well, I'm going to end up diabetic then. You know, I've tried the diet thing. I've tried this. I've tried that. It's not working. I'm still going down this path. And that happens to people. And it's like, so what do you want me to do? I mean, you know, I, I can destroy you once I've once I've got diabetes. You're going to you're going to reject me then, too. I mean, you know, right. Very hard to hear those arguments and keep a straight face. You know, underpinning that is these kind of perverse incentives in the insurance marketplace. And because people change insurance providers so many times, you know, for a lot of people, your health insurance is tied to your job. So if you get a new job, you have new insurance. And even if it's not tied to your job, people change insurance quite frequently. I think a lot of insurance companies, they have this perspective that, a large investment in one's health, such as a drug like this, you know, even if it confers a significant return, the return <laughs> might happen when it's on, when the patient's on somebody else's insurance's plan. And that's, that's a very perverse incentive that happens when people change insurance companies so frequently and it's tied to employment the way it is. That's a complex issue. You know, I don't, I don't know how to get around that within our current insurance system. You, know, you look at a country like the U.K., on one hand, they're having tons of problems with uh, the NHS healthcare system right now, tons of problems. On the other hand, one problem they're not having is that they realize a return, a long-term return, when they make long-term investments in people's health. And we've got to find a way to make that financially incentivized for insurance companies here. We're visiting with uh, Dr. Joe Cantor, the state health officer for the state of Louisiana. We will be right back. If you have a question for Dr. Cantor, give us a call, 504-260-1870 on the Oakland Heart Jewelers Talk and Text Line. We'll be right back. This is Newell on WWL. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink... What you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back, folks. We're visiting with Dr. Joe Cantor, the state health officer for the state of Louisiana. On the text line, Dr. Cantor, is the reduction in RSV have anything to do with inoculations now offered for expecting mothers, infants, and seniors? Oh, I wish I could say it was. It's probably not. You know, the rise and fall of RSV this year, while it was relatively early compared to other years, it it was a pretty similar duration. So we, we had a pretty normal RSV season. It just began a little bit earlier than normal. Um, the protections that are out there for um, for moms and infants, and, and there's, there's two out there. There's a more traditional RSV vaccine that's available uh, for really two groups of people, folks who are 60 and above and um, women pregnant in their third trimester. There's a, then the second product, a monoclonal antibody. You folks will remember that we use monoclonal antibodies at one point during COVID. This is a monoclonal antibody specifically for infants, infants who are entering their first RSV season to confer protections. Um, both of those are relatively new. They kind of came out on the market as this RSV season was getting going. We had still do have supply issues where um, the manufacturers were not able to produce enough to meet demand that should change by next season. So I don't think they really end up having much practical effect this particular RSV season. I do think they will next season. And I think we'll see that perhaps not necessarily in the number of people that get infected with RSV, but we certainly will see it in the number of people who are hospitalized and die with RSV. That's something I think we can look forward to for next season, but I don't think they were around long enough or in sufficient quantity to make a difference, unfortunately, for this season. Another text, my wife and son went to the doctor with an illness. The doctor only wanted to test for the flu, and they were positive. When they got home, they both took a home COVID test and tested positive as well. Why are doctors not wanting to test for COVID? Oh, a lot do. Um, A lot do. And a lot of the, the respiratory tests that people are using in emergency departments now are what's called these multiplex tests where they test for a number of viruses, COVID, flu A, flu B, um, RSV, and a few other respiratory viruses, all all in one swab. Um, I think there's value to testing for more than one. Um, You can have both at the same time, as your listener points out, and there are treatments available. You know, if you're positive with COVID and you're early enough in your illness, and you are at risk for severe disease, um, Paxlovid is a good medicine available and significantly decreases your chance of being hospitalized. Um, Likewise, there are treatments for flu, uh, like Tamiflu, that if you give it early enough in one's course, can make a difference. So that's, I think, one of the things that has changed. Um, You know, in, in years past, perhaps there was this mindset that, okay, you get a respiratory virus, there's probably not much you can do except, you know, get rest, drink fluids, hope for the best, et cetera. There are good treatments now, and that makes it worth your while to get tested. I think more and more medical facilities are going to be moving to these 
you know, multi-virus tests, one swab, and you test for a whole host of viruses. And the reason why I think they're doing that is because for a lot of them, there are treatments available now. Doc, there is a uh, – you and I have talked about antibiotics a number of times. I was reading in um, the L.A. Times a, a story about a uh, drug-resistant superbug uh, – otherwise known as, I think they call it CRAB, C-R-A-B, a nightmare for hospitals worldwide as it kills roughly half of all patients who acquire it. Um, I, I'm not going to even attempt to, to pronounce the medical term here again. Um, but they were saying that there's um, a new drug, uh that Roach uh, and others are working on, which is kind of a, a super antibiotic to deal with these super bugs. What do we know about this um, super bug? Yeah, it's 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 been a problem. It's it, it's becoming um, more of a problem. It's it's it, crabs, right? Crabs, the acronym. It's it's carbapenem resistant actinobacter bananae, if I, if I remember that correctly. I thought I might have gotten that, one of those words. That, it, wrong. that is it. Ding, 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 you win. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, this is the problem. The, the, the problem is that we overuse antibiotics. And um, this is a problem that is uh, because us in the medical community are too quick to use antibiotics, and it's also a problem because patients demand antibiotics when they're probably not indicated. And um, it's funny you bring this up right after we're done talking about the flu because um, that's the classic case. The classic case is, um, you know, a patient goes in to an urgent care or an ER or their primary doc, although it's less likely in the primary doc setting because you have a relationship with someone, and they've got a virus. Um, you know, they, they feel crummy. They've got a low-grade fever. They're not an extremist. They don't need to be hospitalized. They've got a virus. They feel bad. They're, they're out sick from work for a couple of days. And they really want an antibiotic to, to make them feel better. But the problem is antibiotics don't work for viruses. They work for, for, for bacteria. And a virus is something different. Um, but because, you know, they, they want to feel better and it's easy and, and the medical provider wants to help or is busy or, or for any number of reasons, they end up leaving with a prescription for an antibiotic. Usually it's a Z-Pak or azithromycin or something similar to that. And, uh, you know, people might think it's harmless. Uh, it's not. I mean, if you, don't, if you take a medicine that won't have any benefit, all you're left with are the potential side effects. So it's not harmless to the patient, but in aggregate over the population, it causes great harm because the more you use these antibiotics, you know, bacteria are, are kind of smart and they develop resistance to it. Um, they figure out how to beat the antibiotic, and that's why penicillin really now only works for syphilis. It doesn't work for much else because um, bacteria have evolved to become resistant. So you've got to save these guns for when they're needed, and we haven't done a good job of that here. We've overprescribed, and so you end up with these super bugs, and then pharmaceutical companies have to go invest tons of money in the NIH, too, in developing you know, more powerful antibiotics. But I'll tell you, you know, a lot of these more powerful antibiotics have their own side effects. So I think we would be all better off if we were accepted the fact that, you know, if you have a virus and you're homesick, if it's just a virus, it's probably best not to pick a Z-Pak for that. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I could just talk about my own personal experience. I, mm-hmm. I don't tolerate Cipro very well. Yeah. And there's been certain times that they wanted to give me Cipro, and I developed thrush. And that's nasty. I mean, that's horrible. <laughs> you know, so it's like I tell them right away when I go in now, if I don't need it, don't give it to me. <laughs> that's know, right. And, and, you know, worse than thrush, uh, uh, what's known now is a very small percentage of people that take Cipro, a very small percentage, are going to be at increased risk for rupturing their Achilles heel tendon, uh, which can put you, if anyone's had an Achilles rupture, that puts you in the boot for a few months. Um, small percentage, you know, very, very small percentage, but with the degree that we're over-prescribing antibiotics like Cipro, that really adds up. So just to illustrate the point that these type of antibiotics – if you're not treating a bacterial infection, they have no potential benefit. All you're left with is the risk, however small that might be. So what is the connection there between Unclear. Cipro and, and, yeah. and Un- nobody Unclear. knows? There might be some explanation for why that, that I don't know or haven't read or don't understand but, you know, this is one of those side effects that was brought to light from extensive safety monitoring. And, um, you know, we actually have a very robust pharmaceutical safety monitoring program in this country. Um, it works on specific patient case capture. It also works on, on elaborate modeling. Um, and this is one of those conditions that was brought to light through that and bore out um, in a couple large retrospective studies. So, again, the, the risk is, is really small. And in most patients that need Cipro for um, a kidney infection or for something else, usually the benefit greatly outweighs the risk, and that's the calculation you make when you're treating a patient. But that doesn't hold true if the patient doesn't need the antibiotic in the first place. Yeah. We'll be right back. We're visiting with Dr. Joe Cantor, State Health Officer for the State of Louisiana. Stay with us, folks. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey, everyone. Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us, and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app. We're back. We're visiting with Dr. Joe Cantor, state health officer for the state of Louisiana. Doc, um, you know, we, you and I talked a lot over 2023. Let's, let's look forward to 2024. What are you excited about and what are you, what are you concerned with? I'm excited um, in terms of public health for some normalization. You know, the, the public health world was obviously turned upside down during the pandemic. Um, and that entailed a lot of things. And we had to focus energy and pull that energy away from other efforts. And um, things like STDs, like we were talking about, uh, even, you know, more basic 
health challenges like like obesity and diabetes, um, you know, let's just be real. I mean, attention was elsewhere. So I'm looking forward to resetting all of that and, and, and refocusing on, you know, really the bread and butter issues of public health that um, we need to be focusing on a, on a state like Louisiana that has so many challenges and has so much to gain from that. And I'll tell you, part of that also, I think, is um, decreasing the politicization of the field of public health. We're in this challenging place in public health because our successes are secret oftentimes and our, and, and our failures are public. When public health you know, succeeds in preventing the spread of, of, of some disease or does really good um, uh, you know, case management or uh, disease detective work to stop the spread, you know, because of privacy rules, that's not publicized. And so people don't really understand the benefit of it. You know, I had a mentor that always liked to say, public health saved your life today, you just didn't know it. That, that, the challenge with that is that, you know, people don't always understand what the field of public health is doing. And then it became politicized so much during the pandemic. I'm looking forward to resetting that and, and letting public health professionals continue to do the good work they do often behind the scenes and, you know, without political interference. Um, when concerns, I mean, any significant concerns or, you know, I mean, one for me is is what you just outlined, but really the state of the CDC. I mean, yep. I think you and I at one point we agreed they're just missing the mark, uh, you know, so many times. And hopefully that, that has kind of smoothed itself out. Yeah, we CDC is the flagship institution internationally for, for public health, and, and, and we all need them to be that, <laughs> you know, to be the absolute gold standard. I'll tell you, I like Mandy Cohen, uh, the current CDC director. She's, she was down here um, just before the holiday break. I, I got a chance to sit down with her and chat. Um, very smart, very savvy, very politically attuned, and, and, and she she understands precisely these type of challenges. And I think what sets her apart from her predecessors at the CDC is that she's really politically savvy and understands how to keep the Congress with her, which is going to be you know, necessary. So I'm optimistic for her and the CDC. Um, I, I think we need them. We need them to be very strong. Well, if she's figured out how to keep the Congress with her, we may lose her to another agency. Uh, that's right. <laughs> I know. Easier, e- easier said than done. But, you know, I mean, I'll tell you, there's, I think the mindset of some prior CDC directors was, okay, we're doing the right thing. That's enough. And maybe they weren't even doing the right thing, but that, that was the mindset. We're doing the right thing. That should be enough. In, in politics, that's not, that's not the answer. You know, you always have to be educating stakeholders, including legislators, about what you're doing, why you're doing, why you need their help, always, even if you think it's obvious. It's not obvious. Mandy knows that, and I, I think it's going to serve the agency well. No, absolutely. I mean, the fact that they haven't been on the front page for a long time now, I think a testament to something that's going on yeah. uh, that, that seems to be working, right? Yeah, no question. I agree with that. Absolutely. Doc, thank you so much for joining us. As always, love uh, the conversation. Dr. Joe Cantor, State Health Officer, have a great weekend. 
Thank you, Noel. You too, and Happy New Year again. Same to you, my friend. We'll be right back. 504-260-1870 on the Oakland Heart Jewelers Talk and text line. Stay with us. Welcome back, folks. Um, on Monday, first, I want to congratulate all the elected officials that uh, were sworn in yesterday in Jefferson Parish, um, many of whom were uh, unopposed, and, and uh, they were sworn in, and, and others as well. A couple of new council members to the Jefferson Parish Council. Good luck to you, and congratulations on your election. Uh, it was uh, an interesting day uh, for everyone. Uh, I think it looked like everyone was have, having a good time. A little jocularity was going on as well, uh, which is which is always good. And um, a number of the uh, officials, the assessor, I think for sure, the sheriff, I know for sure, and others, their their term of office doesn't really start in January. I know the sheriff's term of office starts July 1. Um, so there's a big, lame, long, long lame duck uh, uh, session there, but uh, they ceremonially are sworn in with the other parish officials. On January 8th, we have the state officials. And, in fact, uh, I think Dave Cohen and I will be co-hosting a show Monday morning. Uh, we will broadcast live uh, the inaugural speech of Governor-elect Jeff Landry on Monday. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everyone, Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app. 